available on iTunes. And now your hosts, JM and Bernstein. All right, we are back on The Secret Podcast with Will House, myself, Bernstyle next to me in the same room, and we are actually doing an on-location recording, this time from New Orleans, formerly from the Houston Parks Department, Brian Hill. Along with him is another Houston Parks Department person, John Donahue, and we will get some introductions from them as to what they did back in the 70s and 80s with the Houston Parks Department, and we'll talk a little bit about their perspective. Last episode, we got Will House's perspective of him searching for the treasure. Now we'll talk to the Parks Department and see what their take on the whole thing was, and we'll have some questions for them and maybe some things they can clarify as well. Welcome back to the show, Will House, and Brian and John, it's great you could join us. We're thrilled to be here. Why don't we talk to Brian for a little bit? Brian, you're part of our think tank online, and you've been kind of following the secret for quite a while. How long have you been interested in it, and why don't you tell us a little bit about your involvement in it and how you came to know about the secret through Will House? I never knew anything about the secret until I received an email in 2004 from uh, Will House, that marvelous gentleman, who filled me in. He had been to the zoo with his son on a Saturday, and they were wandering around. And at that time, in 2004, the old, what we called the Old Children's Zoo had been closed for some time. A new children's zoo had been opened up in 2002, and the Old Children's Zoo was pretty much used for employee training, and for the holding of some off-exhibit animals and and that kind of thing. And I I get this email (laughs) telling me about this crazy book and this crazy idea that there was some ceramic cask possibly buried uh, in the old children's zoo and that had been done, if I get this right, and correct me, guys, if I'm wrong, in the 70s sometime. I I read this thing. I just had no idea that this had ever happened. It sounded very interesting. And then this wonderful gentleman tells me he wants to come in to the old children's zoo and dig for buried treasure that may have a gemstone in it. I said, well, I would love to meet you. Why don't you come down here and let's talk this over. I got a full background on everything and how long he had been slaving away on this thing. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to have to talk to those above me. I was, I had worked for Parks Department for about four years before I came to the zoo. The city had passed an ordinance that migrated management of the zoo from the city to a 501c3 nonprofit. After that was approved, I wheedled my way in, into the zoo as their PR director. And I said, you know, I'm going to have to go to the boss to see what they think about this. And surprisingly enough, they were very open to it. I explained the, the gentleman who came to me and proposed this thing, he, you know, he wasn't wearing an aluminum foil hat or anything like that. Everything was, <laughs> was looking, you know, I, I think we ought to do this. This could really, not only would it be fun, but to be quite frankly, Mr. Bossman, zoo director, uh, we might get a little publicity out of this thing, so let's do it. And I'll take full responsibility for anybody from outside that this gentleman brings with shovels and bags and, and everything else. I'll always be there. We'll keep an eye on it. And they were, surprisingly enough, they were all for it. I can't remember how long it was from the first overture in, uh, I think it was March 2004, until we actually started going back there and, and doing some some digging. My father was here for my son's graduation. It was actually the next weekend that we came by wow. and started looking around. 
And the, the more we talked to zoo staff about this, the more they were intrigued. We got incredible support, not just from the, the grounds guys, the director of horticulture got involved, some of the uh, former zoo staff that had worked in the old CZ and then moved to the, to the new children's zoo were really intrigued about this. And we got all kinds of support. I can't remember, how many trips did you make? 15 or 20. Really? Over the course of about yeah. two years. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Things, of course, have changed drastically uh, since 2004 with the construction of new exhibits that were on the site of the old uh, children's zoo. But I'm still hoping that at some point you'll actually find it. When you were first approached uh, by Wilhouse about this, did he provide any uh, pictures or any kind of evidence to kind of show you like what he was doing or what did you make of the whole thing? Did he show you the book? What really got you to say, okay, well, maybe this is legit. He brought in so much background material, the book, photographs that he had assembled and the research he had done. To me, it basically said, look, this, this whole thing is legit. Uh, this guy's put in a lot of time on this up to this point. This is not just some wild hair that, you know, came up one morning when he was drinking a cup of coffee on the way to work. That really lent a lot of legitimacy to it and gave me some armor that when I went into the zoo director and when I went into some of the other uh, supervisory folks on staff that we could get their support. And what Brian probably forgets, uh, but was on purpose, was that I brought my father, who was in his 60s at the time, and my middle son with me to, on the first visit so he could see that, that it wasn't just me, that I actually had a family and, and seemed to be a, like a stable person. Yes, and the, it, it was plain that the mothership hadn't just brought him in recently. The, the, this was this went a, a lot deeper than that. Was there any kind of permitting that needed to be done, or was this all kind of just word of mouth? Like you, you took it to your boss, had a conversation with him, and everybody was in agreement. So as long as you were there and were supervising, that it was okay. Or did you actually have to go out and file a right of entry for him? Uh, uh, or any kind of paperwork that needed to be done. This is 2004. Obviously, the reason I'm getting at this is for today's hunters, what they would expect to see when trying to get permission, not necessarily in Houston, but with any parks department. Right. What was the legal procedure to do it? Maybe it's a little more relaxed in Houston than other places. Yeah, I think it was very relaxed. When I was approached, I immediately took it to the top of the pile and went direct to the zoo director. Granted, I didn't have it on paper, but I got his personal okay in the process being told that you are responsible, young man. So you're you're the one I will come hunt down if something untoward should happen. But once I had that and I could tell the horticulture director and some of the other supervisory folks on hand that, you know, yeah, Rick's behind this. We're good then we pretty much had carte blanche to do whatever we wanted to do. As long as we stayed in the zoo. Right. As long as the exploration was in the footprint of the old children's zoo, then everything was fine. If it came outside of that at, at any time, we'd have to go back and let everybody know that, well, we had new information that this might not be there. It could be somewhere else. Because the zoo wasn't being used, right? The children's zoo? It was being used as uh, off-exhibit holding for some animals. It was used for storage. It was used for employee training. It's close to the public. Close to the public. At the time, we were doing some overnight campouts uh, at the zoo. Uh, so part of the old children's zoo could have been used for that. And actually, I remember a couple of times like the uh, Girl Scouts or Cub Scouts would come into the auditorium and yes. they would have some live presentations with some small animals. Right. Yeah. About this time, 
Will House comes to you with this idea, and did you go out and get a copy of the book at the time? Did you start to get into it, or did it take a few uh, few trips uh, with Will House before you kind of started getting into it? Uh, I, I was intrigued to say the least, but I, at the time, I had only been public affairs media relations guy for just a couple of years. The zoo was in the process of really amping up special events and that kind of thing to you know really get the public involved in the the new zoo, the new management. So I just kind of, I leaned on this wonderful gentleman to really tell me a little bit of background and stuff. And yes, I was intrigued. I wanted to know more. I did spend some time over lunch at my desk and at home digging around on the web to see what I could find and see if there was any other activity going on. Yeah, it was, uh, I I was intrigued, to say the least. To uh, put it in perspective, in the year and a half or two years that we spent uh, dealing with each other at the zoo, between the three of us, I have over 500 emails. You know, speaking of emails, <laughs> speaking of emails, uh, when Wilhouse brought this to you, did you contact the author? I heard there was a story that possibly you reached out to uh, Byron Price Publications to find out the legitimacy of this at all, or was that John that did that? No, that was done with Wilhouse's assistance, and in, in fact, he drafted the email and sent it to me for my review. We agreed that unless there were little punctuation and grammar kind of things that needed to be dressed up, that this would go exactly as Wilhouse wrote it. That was fine with me. Uh, Will has did a great job in what he wrote, kind of explaining who I was, why this is coming from me. And I think it was definitely the way to go. Then just hearing about it from me to have that, that kind of backup that, yeah, this is, this is legit. And let's pursue this and see if we can get an answer. Did he respond? He did respond. Price on July 21st of 2004 uh, to me, <laughs> the response was, all in lowercase, still attempting to confirm a reply. That was it. That was what we got. Still attempting to confirm a reply. It's not very clear. Uh, in context, I had written him earlier about a location in the children's zoo that I believed it was in. And my email was very specific, and I said I was calling out the section of the book that said if I knew where it was, that you would tell us if it was there. And he responded by saying, and I did say this in our last podcast, he responded by saying, I will go check and get back to you. So when Brian Hill basically sent an email stating similar things, his response was, he's attempting to get a response. Well, he, we both know now that he couldn't find those photos. And so clearly he was out looking Okay. How long did this go on, this uh, love affair with the children's zoo, Brian, for, uh, for you and Wilhouse? How many times were you down there uh, poking holes and digging before the, before the great flood came? We had some communications in 2006, but 2000, yeah. end of 2005 was the, was the great flood. And <laughs> the great flood the children's zoo. We're not talking about a great flood that Houston has experienced, like nothing on, on the, the lines of Harvey. We had, I had convinced the uh, uh, director of horticulture uh, to help do some excavation. And not only did he show up to kind of supervise, there was a backhoe that was parked in there because there was some demolition that was going on. He knew how to operate the thing and volunteered to dig wherever Wilhouse told him 
to dig within the bounds of safety and, and that kind of thing. At one point, and I have to say, we started around sunset, mm-hmm. maybe a little earlier. Yeah. So by the time the, the backhoe is making some deep penetrations into the lovely soil of the children's zoo, it's about maybe 8.30 at night. And the perfect time for the director of horticulture to hit a water main. Yeah. Well, it was a sprinkler head, but it kind of blew up from there. Yeah. It felt like a water main. I, I can't recall how long it spewed for quite a while because nobody knew <laughs> where the main cutoff was. So I had to track down the, the zoo's facilities guy in charge of plumbing, get him in his car, get him down the Gulf Freeway into the zoo. And by the time he got there, we were waiting in ankle deep water, but the man was, he was a good soul. And uh, he shut it off and got back in his car and went home to his, to his wife and children. And it was forgotten. I mean, I guess you just throw your arms up in the air and say, well, it's not here anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It happens, you know, how many of us haven't hit a water main with a backhoe while looking for treasure? (laughs) It's just something you you just got to get used to it. When I was working at the zoo, we were working for Houston Zoo, Inc., not for the Parks Department. Oh, okay. The Parks Department basically turned the property over to the nonprofit to run. The Houston Zoo itself is a nonprofit, or is it just uh, a faction of it? It was a city zoo until 1980, till 2002, and that's when it was privatized. So when he buried the cask inside, well, supposedly buried it inside Herman Park, it was a public entity at that time, right? That is correct. Let's talk about John Donahue for a second. John, what was your role with the Houston Zoo from the 70s and 80s onward? <laughs> I started in the, at the zoo in 1973 as a zookeeper and then in, became a supervisor. And in 1977, I became curator of the Children's Zoo. I was curator there until 1988. So at some point during my watch, apparently somebody snuck in there and planted this cask. Okay, and do you think it was feasible for him to to do that? This is the big question, by the way, that everybody's been asking. Debate has been going on for some time about this issue on the message boards and within our group and within a lot of people uh, when the subject of Houston comes up. Did he sneak in to the back gate and bury something in the children's zoo and then also expect us to sneak in the back gate and dig it up. Uh, How feasible do you think that was? Oh, it was very easy back then. Uh, During that time, the zoo was free. It was wide open. There was a driveway gate off of the main road there in the medical center, and you could just walk in at any time that the zoo was open. Uh, You could even drive a car in there if there was nobody, and people did drive in and drive through the zoo like a drive through zoo at times until they got caught. But it would be very easy for somebody to come into the zoo at, in the late in the afternoon or even at night. Uh, but late in the afternoon, it'd be very easy. It was wide open. And you could probably walk back there with tools. Nobody would question you. Especially if you had a disguise, right? If he was wearing a hard hat and a high-vis vest and some boots. Right. People wouldn't ask any questions, right? The children's zoo closed earlier than the rest of the zoo. The children's zoo closed at four. So you had several hours in the summertime that the zoo was open, but the children's zoo was closed and somebody could go in the back through the service driveway to the children's zoo. They could actually drive in and go around all the way to the back of the children's zoo and be concealed. Wow. And from my understanding, the Houston Zoo is a a little bit sort of like 
you were describing the Jacksonville Zoo. So it was kind of a park that had a zoo in it, but there weren't a whole lot of defined boundaries. It, you were just kind of walking through, and you felt like you were in a park, but you were actually in a zoo. Is that kind of how it was back in the late 70s, early 80s? Well, we had our main gate that had turnstiles, but you just walked through the turnstiles. Nobody was there taking tickets. And then uh, at one time, I cannot remember when we finally closed the back gate, but the back gate that was there off the street into the children's zoo was also open when the children's zoo was open. And at some point, we did not have enough staff. We had to put a zookeeper back there to guard the gate. And at some point, we made our case that we could not do that and run, and run the children's zoo. Okay. At the front gate of the, the old front gates of the zoo, there were two large columns on either side of the main gates, and there were relief, animal relief, they call them Boz Relief, images on the tops of those columns, including a rhinoceros. Oh, interesting. Do you have, uh, are there pictures of those anywhere? I found one, John. We were just looking at it before, and I'll send it to you. We'll be sure to put that up on the podcast page so you can see that. So, John, when you looked at those and you looked at the Houston image, did you see a, a similarity between the two? Referring to those pillars. I, I honestly didn't put that together until we were talking here this evening, and I looked at that column, and I thought, holy cow, those things have, have the animal relief at the top. Those are now mounted on the wall of the education building in the current zoo. They were definitely there at the zoo entrance. Very interesting. And how often did the children's zoo go through renovations back then? Was it a constant thing, or did everything kind of just pretty much stay the same with the exception of what the animals needed for maintenance and switching around and stuff? Not a lot happened until the mid-'80s. Uh, from the time the Children's Zoo opened in 68 uh, until mid-'80s, there was nothing major going on in there. As the Children's Zoo evolved, some of the planters, there was a planter around the stone lantern in the center of the Children's Zoo, and that got bricked in because plants couldn't live there with people walking all over it. What about... Apparently, there was a mini train. I'm, I'm kind of delving in and out in some questions that we had from not only our team, but some online questions today. Someone had commented that there was a, uh, a, a mini train that ran through the children's zoo. Is that true? And how long did that run? There was a train within the zoo that ran during the 60s, 70s. I think they stopped that in the late 70s because there were just too many visitors on the sidewalks. It was a tired train, and it did run past the gates to the children's zoo back in those days. I'm not aware of it. There was no track that it ran on. It just drove wherever it went. This was a tired train, wheeled train. If you're referring to the whistle, we could hear the whistle from the Nabisco factory three times a day. It was just a few blocks away. They made lovely cookies there that we could smell cooking in the morning. And if you had not eaten your breakfast, you would be very hungry. Now, that is interesting that you bring that up. I mean, those were the two things that we were talking with Wilhouse about on the last episode were the spout and the whistle. And we had brought that Nabisco whistle up. But from the children's zoo, what kind of water, other than the aqua tunnel, what kind of water features were around there that there could have been a spout coming out of? Do you recall at all? The only thing we had back then was Brownie, the uh, statue, that little fountain. So that was really the only uh, water feature that you would have seen uh, as you were in the children's zoo itself. 
the McGovern Lake was way outside of the, that area, right? Correct. We had a couple of small pond-type features that the animals could drink out of, but nothing like a fountain or a spouting water. Wilhouse had mentioned that there was a woods, as you would say, that you had referred to as the Friendship Woods. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more and tell us exactly where that area was in relation to Herman Park? Directly across what was then Outer Belt Drive from the zoo, which is where the medical center starts, there was a wooded area just south of the current Bentob Hospital that had a sign called the Friendship Wood. I have no idea the history of that, but it did have a sign there. We also had a small friendship garden within the children's zoo. It seems like that was probably after the secret I think that was probably in 83, 84, 85, maybe. So the Friendship Wood was there. That's historic. I have no idea how long it was there. I'm just kind of looking at a map right now, and I'm trying to figure out where this was. Is this on the Herman Park Drive side? Correct. It would be across Outer Belt Drive from the Children's Zoo, actually. If you want to look at it from this point of view, it would be Friendship south of the zoo. Okay, so that that line would fit then. Right. There was a big sign that said that, but was it a common was it common knowledge what that place was? It was a typical parks type sign, a routed wood sign, brown with the silver letters. It it had been there probably thirty years. This is really clearing up a lot of stuff. I'm glad that you guys are talking with us tonight. This is great. Interestingly though, when you got across the street to that friendship wood, you could no longer really see into the children's zoo. So if you've got that far, you've passed it. How did you find out about the secret, John? Let's just go back to that. Why don't you tell us your story about how you learned about it and became involved with uh, knowing uh, that there possibly was a treasure buried in Herman Park? I can't remember if I got a phone call from Brian or an email, probably a phone call first. I didn't know what to make of it, but then uh, he sent me some of the documentation or maybe Wilhouse did. I cannot remember. This has been a few years back. I got intrigued. I read The Secret. I was completely baffled by the verse, but I got to looking at things. Things looked familiar in there. Then we had this expedition, which seemed kind of high secret at the time, to go dig in the old children's zoo. And it was the first time I'd set foot in there since it had been closed. And it was really quite strange for me. We dug and didn't find anything at the time. Or should I tell them we found it? No, no. I made that up. I made that up. That's that's where I got into it. And um, I've been racking my brain trying to remember how things were back then. But that's pretty much it. Wilhouse says that you distinctly remember that the llama was named Snowflake and there was also another animal named Pierre. Is this true? I, I was trying to pick the brain of some of the keepers that worked with me back then. I think we had a young llama that was born named Snowflake at, during that time period. I don't know what happened to that animal. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out who Pierre might be. Well, more importantly, would there have been a sign with the name of the animal on the pen so that you could read it? It would be printed in front of you? The llamas at that time did, uh, we did have signs naming the birth dates and the whole bit. I think now's a good time to ask this question. What kind of records did you guys keep? So like if, if we wanted to go back and see the types of animals that you had, their names, where they were, locations, things like that, if we wanted to go back 30 years and see that, would we be able to? Did you guys keep a, a decent record of all of that? <laughs> Uh, well, does mimeographs count for anything? Uh, 
I've got some very bad carbon copies of things that we did back then. We didn't have computers. We barely had typewriters at the time. I've got some old animal inventories, I think, from the children's zoo, but I can't remember what years they were from. Those records would be hard to come by. I think that that's what people are running into in other cities. We're, tr- we're contacting parks departments trying to figure out layouts of parks and things like that, and we're finding that these records just don't exist. It's like record keeping was invented in the 90s or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I have an email from Brian which lists all the llamas that were in the zoo proper, but then, then I have an email from John saying, oh, in the children's zoo, we weren't as good as getting the animals into the records because they would go from the children's zoo into the main zoo. When they went into the main zoo, they picked up the records. They didn't necessarily pick up the records from the children's zoo. Right. And there wasn't any record of a snowflake or a Pierre in the, the main zoo's records. Yeah, I think we had Pierre, I would re- remember that. When you hear the line, small, split, three-winged, and slight, does that jog any kind of memories as to what that could be? Some of the things that we've looked at with Wilhouse's photos, uh, we noticed that there were some, I guess you would call them cinder block made kind of figures that were all over the zoo, and we were really trying to nail down what that riddle could be, what the solve for that could be. Is there anything, and I don't, I don't want to break your brain here, John, it's a long time ago, but is, is there anything that you can remember that maybe would fit that description, something physical or something existential in the children's zoo at that time? These, the cinder block totems were the first thing that came to my mind. We did have uh, some birds of prey. We had an owl with one wing and a hawk, and I don't know if that could be a three-wing reference. Were there a lot of stairs in the children's zoo? staircases, stairs, something else that might have wings other than an animal? Yes, there was a staircase to my office at the the front of the children's zoo. There was a small porch with maybe five steps up to the party house. There were steps all the way around the auditorium. The auditorium was round, and there were steps up all the way around that, like two steps. Now, those steps were interesting, and I haven't talked about this very much. If you stood in the back of the zoo and looked at those two steps, those steps had a metal furring strip around them for traction. And there was a silver or galvanized piece of furring strip that went around it. And if you stood behind them and looked at them, they kind of would look like railroad tracks curving around the auditorium. They were two parallel tracks that went around the auditorium. Did that seem to fit that image match that we kind of see in the in the bottom right there with the um, how you would see a railroad represented on a map, actually, just a line with some crossing lines going through it? And we see on the Houston image, there's those six lines crossing through the, the curved line, which kind of, uh, you know, to me, that resembles a railroad track, like a map key for a railroad track. Did that resemble those fairings? I just couldn't see anything there that resembled that to me. To oblique. Forrest Blight from our group was curious as to whether the Aqua Tunnel was there in 1981. It was mentioned that it was built in the late 70s, early 80s. It was actually built in 1968 when the Children's Zoo was built. It was one of the main features of the Children's Zoo. And I just remembered it had a waterfall on it at the north end of it. 
there was a waterfall that came down into the tunnel part. Well, that would be the water veers in the sky more obvious than, than anything else, I would think. That actually, if you were inside the tunnel looking up, uh, that could be water veering from the sky. At that time, the tunnel didn't have a roof on it. We put a roof on the aqua tunnel in about 84, 85, uh, because it was impossible to maintain because of the algae growth on the plexiglass. So we ended up putting a roof on it. And the water all went away, and I just now thought of it. Interesting. We're looking at the image right now, and it's interesting that the railroad track, what looks like a map, a railroad crossing, goes right into the fountain of the gin, which if you were standing behind the auditorium, that's exactly the way the steps would look. As it curved, it curved right into the elf fountain. And it curved in that direction that you're looking at it. So the aqua tunnel was definitely there in 1981. And there was a waterfall at the time in 81, would you say? Or had it been covered by then and the waterfall was gone by 81, 1981? The waterfall was there. The question would be whether it was running. That exhibit was down a lot. Plexiglass broke, various plumbing problems. But normally it would have been running and you would have had the waterfall there. We can verify that it, it was probably there and running in 1981. I believe so. I have a question for John about the image, which shows the calm with the ball on and what your thought about that potentially looking like the globe lights. That would have been about the only thing like that in the children's zoo at that time. At the original installation, these globe lights were a feature around the auditorium, the nursery building, and a couple of other spots back in the 80s. Those were replaced with more modern fixtures. Yeah, they were there uh, certainly at the beginning of the 80s. Those globe lights, uh, you said they were around the auditorium. The auditorium was, in fact, Wilhouse, didn't you say that that was where the four lands met is kind of where the auditorium was as well? Or was that in a different area? No, that was at the southern tip of the Children's Zoo. The Friendship Japanese Lantern was in the center of the four lands. And interestingly, I went back over my notes, and the Asia land was decorated with a Japanese dragon over it. So a lot of people have said, what's the Asia connection? And in the book, if you read, it says that it's a ruby from Araby. And so the Araby or Arabic connection with the jinn and the Asian connection with the Asia land all does fit into this image. There's definitely something about that uh, in the center of four alike, you standing in the middle of those four continents. I I certainly think that does make sense. Here's a question for John. How would BP have done research from home on Herman Park, especially on the Children's Zoo? Were were there any resources available in 1980-81 on the Children's Zoo? Or maybe this would be a better question for Brian since he was the, uh, the PR director. I'm just curious, is there any research he could have done where he could have figured out where to dig with some precision that he knew he wouldn't be wasting his time to go to the zoo in person to bury it? Or would he have had to make several trips to the Houston Zoo to do that recon? Was there any kind of literature out there? Could could anybody find anything, maps, any kind of anything? I'm sure that the the original construction maps for the Children's Zoo were still available. I had them in my office, actually. But back then, it would be so easy to walk in. You could spend days doing all the reconnaissance you wanted to, and nobody would ever ask you anything. If he was in uh, New York, though, or another state, would any of that be available 
anywhere? Were there magazines, uh, any national magazines, do any articles on the Houston Zoo or the Children's Zoo? Or was there any kind of national press that would have been out there or available at that time? Because, you know, it's not the age that we live in today where you can just hop on the Internet and look at something. Uh, maybe National Geographic or some of these other magazines could have done a feature on it. Was there anything that you can think of? There, when the when the Children's Zoo opened, there was quite a publicity splash in Houston. If you had access to the newspaper archives, maybe could have gotten something there. But as I said, we couldn't research things at our fingertips like we do today. That wrapped up the questions that I had from online. George, did you have any other questions you wanted to ask John or Brian? Uh, Someone wanted to know if there was a community message board um, in the zoo where people could post, you know, current events or whatever. Uh, Essentially, they're thinking that one of the pillars looks like a pushpin. They're wondering if there's a cork board anywhere that was available, not in the zoo, but outside of the zoo. These are the kind of questions we get from online. (laughs) No, uh, there was nothing like that back then. It was, it was so wide open. Uh, the park was wide open there. Okay. Okay. Very crowded, busy. Nothing would last on a bulletin board out there. (laughs) Okay. Were there any emails traded between John and Byron? You were just kind of on the fringe as the park guy, right? I was purposely doing that. Brian was taking the heat for anything that went wrong, and I would be the accomplice that could go out the back gate when the cops came. So that was my part. (laughs) Okay. As far as any hope for finding it if it were in the children's zoo today? Do you think it's just a foregone conclusion to say that uh, if it was there, it's unretrievable or gone now? Has has all of that land, uh, to your knowledge, been completely redone, or is there any original stuff left? It's completely gone. Uh, the, the new gorilla habitat pretty much took it all. I think the most important thing we can take from this is that the atmosphere back in the 80s was a lot different than it is today. I don't think that there would be a question in the 80s whether he could have buried it or whether he would have buried it there because it was such a relaxed atmosphere. As you said, anybody could kind of walk in and out. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, mind being paid to the children's area. What about at night? I believe Wilhouse said at one point to me that there was a closure and that there was a gate that was locked. But then I had heard a conflicting story that that gate was left open for veterinarians and and other people to get in the back in case there was an emergency. Can you speak to that at all? Sure. The children's zoo uh, gates for the public would close when the children's had closed. And there was a service drive that led back to the clinic at that time that would usually be left open until the zoo itself closed. The night watchman would come through, close that gate, close the back gate to Outer Belt Drive, and then they close the front gates. Summer, it was 6 o'clock, and during the winter, it was 5 o'clock back then. And was that a very uh, secure gate, or is that something that somebody could just hop over? Oh, you could hop over the fence at any point. I had a prisoner come across the fence in the children's zoo one day. Police were yelling at me to stop him, and I said, I don't think so. And I went in real quick. I was right next to the office, called the park police. 
I knew they were up in the center part of the zoo. They'd be down very quickly. The guy went actually back that back down that back driveway to the party house, I guess, because I lost sight of him. And when he came back around, he, I was right there. He walked up towards the front of the old clinic building, and I put my hand on his shoulder because I could see the police coming. I said, just hold it right here in as authoritative a voice as I could. He did stay for me. The police got there. It turns out he'd shot a police officer at the hospital across the street. Wow. It was not unusual for an escaped prisoner from the hospital or a mental patient from the hospital, somebody just to walk into the zoo. Yeah, it was interesting back then. <laughs> That's, that sounds like the perfect place to have a children's zoo. Okay, so there, there's a big resurgence in, in popularity in this puzzle. So there's a lot of people out that are digging now uh, without permission that are, that are just sort of sneaking out in the middle of the night and digging huge holes in parks. We got a unique opportunity speaking to the two of you, your positions with the park. What is the best way for someone to approach a park service to be able to get permission and, and not sound like a, a crazy madman that wants to you know, destroy parks? I can address the part about approaching. I don't know about not sounding like you're bat crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Wheelhouse went to you guys and got you guys excited. It seems like you were, you were both very excited about this. You dug with him, and, and it seems like over the years you've become friends. So his approach seems to have worked. I, I guess, should people approach it in a similar way, or is there absolutely a way you should not approach it? Just what are, what are your thoughts about the best, the best way to approach the park service? Well, I think we have to bear in mind that this was a unique situation because the zoo is no longer under the city's control. That immediately cut almost 90% of the red tape. Things could happen very quickly. Uh, if you had gone through channels with the city, uh, it would have probably involved more than the parks department. Legal would have been involved. This thing would probably still be in process waiting for permission today. I mean, that is true. If we look at some of the sites, I mean, I can speak on Milwaukee that <laughs> there was a long, arduous process dealing with uh, Kevin and the Parks Department there and getting a right of entry permit from the city. And there was, uh, I think it was about a seven or eight point permit. It stated that the parks would keep the cask. I, I wouldn't even be able to keep it if I found it. I had to uh, state where I was going to be digging, and I had to repair all that stuff. So the city was a long process. If we look at the Fountain of Youth Park, which is privately owned. You can make a call. You can make a call and get something done. So I think John's right with saying if it's a, you know, if you're dealing with a city, and I think this is with anything, not just treasure hunting. It's, you know, same thing, getting uh, your street or sidewalk repaired in your city. It, when you deal with the city, things just take forever. It doesn't matter if you are the most sane person on the planet or have a tin hat. I think the city is going to have to deal with you the same each way, and it's going to be a long, arduous process each way. But I certainly think that if you came to the parks officials, the supervisors like uh, Animal Painter and I, when we first started looking around Milwaukee, we just dealt with a parks department supervisor. We went in and talked to her, got a written permission letter from her that we used, and it wasn't until I wanted to start tearing up the whole land side of the park on, on Lincoln Memorial Drive that I had to actually go get the permit. So I guess there is something to being human with people and not just going out and digging helter-skelter on your own without permission late at night, like we're going to go do tonight. Probably not a good idea. Don't, uh, don't try this at home, I guess, would be the warning here. I mean, it's good to know that it was a 501c, 
and you said that happened uh, just shortly after the 70s? That was in 2002. Oh, I'm sorry. So that happened in 2002, and it was a city-run entity before that. Correct. Just curious, how does the now that the zoo is a 501c, do you know in fact how they uh, they do their fundraising? Is it a lot of grants? Is it a lot of supports? Or is there fundraising campaigns that go on? It takes a lot of money to run a zoo. It does and they've been very successful at going to foundations. When I worked at the zoo, there was no admission charge. You just walked in. Now they charge admission, which they uh, are able to recoup funds. And they've gone out and they do fundraising with various organizations also. There's Friends of the Zoo. Yeah, the Zoo Friends. Zoo Lights. For many years, I sponsored young animals in the zoo. You could put money towards uh, baby animals and the raising of baby animals. And for years and years and years, I did that as part of my uh, penance for digging up the zoo. They do a lot of special events also. Back on the permissions thing, it is very helpful if you've got somebody on the inside helping you. And if you are really pretty certain that you know where this location is and there is a local park supervisor, superintendent, somebody there in that area that you can talk to and try to convince that you're not crazy and then you they can become your ally in going to their bosses and then work it on up the line it's very strange that the if it's a city park if it's a public park you would think that if you were a member of the public uh, you wouldn't have to jump through so much red tape to try and do something in in the park that you ultimately pay for but it, it is a little different i i would agree with you it's probably best to um to work it from the inside and and also to have some kind of uh, legitimacy to what you're doing you were kind of on the sidelines for all this and and you know a little bit about the book and how it worked do you think wilhouse was uh was on to something do you think it was in the children's zoo i honestly don't know it sure seems like it I would like to think it's there. A lot of these things fit, but I just can't put all the pieces together in my mind. It's probably, (laughs) I know it's someplace in that Herman Park area, and it sure looks like these, everything points towards the children's. Well, we certainly would like to take a look at those columns. And you say they're still there, so that's kind of good. You can go in and see them. The actual columns aren't there, but they did take the Boz Relief animals off of them. And those are mounted in the wall of the education building. But there are pictures of those. They were featured very prominently in old postcards of the zoo back in the 50s and 60s. So, uh, and I've seen those on eBay and various places. So, as of right now, the zoo is a separate entity from the the rest of Herman Park. Correct. Is anything else in the park like that is is the the miller theater a separate entity in the park i mean or does the parks department handle everything except the zoo miller theater is still a parks department entity but they work very closely with theater under the stars and a number of these other these other groups put on functions there of course the museum of natural science is, is within the park also and that's a completely separate organization we've got the garden center which is uh, part of the city that's pretty much all the things that are in herman park oh the yeah. japanese gardens there's the japanese gardens now and of course the golf course is just south or east of the zoo 
It is a big park. I, it's when I went there for the first time, I was floored to see how enormously large it is. I mean, it's not quite the size of a of a Central Park or a, a Golden Gate Park, but it is certainly a, a ginormous park in the middle of downtown. Uh, I could see where it would take a, a good while if you were trying to have to search the whole thing. But I think that you did clear up a lot of uh, questions today, especially about the image and some of the things that we were trying to look for. Now, Wilhouse had told me in the past that those uh, cinder block structures were kind of moved around a lot. Is that is that true? And then also, were those only in the children's zoo or were they in the rest of the park or, or in the regular zoo as well? They were part of the original design of the children's zoo. And the only time they got moved was when we tore them down. Okay, so if you saw a picture of those, an old picture of those, that uh, they would be there from 68 until the time you tore them down in that same location. Correct. And they, as they got dinged up and kids climbed on them and those sorts of things, we'd take a sledgehammer to them and take them out. Well, what about the lion drinking fountain? Was there more than one of those, and did they get moved around if there was more than one of them? There was one that was permanently installed in the children's zoo from the beginning, right uh, in front of the restroom facility there in the children's zoo next to the auditorium. And then, of course, we had those in the in the main part of the zoo, but we definitely had a lion water fountain in the children's zoo from the beginning. And I've, I've posted pictures of it. Was that that the only one, or because I had heard that there were there were several of them, but I had only seen the picture of one of them. There's just the one in the children's zoo. There were one, two, three, probably in the main zoo. I think there's still a couple there. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Wilhouse, is there anything else that, as long as we have these fine gentlemen, and I want to thank you guys for coming down and, and spending some time with us tonight and talking about some of this stuff. Some of this information is very hard to come by, and it's nice to have someone that was there and can re, you know do their best to remember how things were back in the day. Can you think of anything else that we might want to expound upon as far as things that were in the zoo, placements, things that maybe moved around, anything you can think of? I mean, I know the 982 train, there was some discussion about the tracks of that moving and that path of that train changing. Is that something that happened quite a bit between uh, the 80s and, and now? It was a permanent fixture up until sometime in the 2000s when they moved it uh, over to the railroad museum now it moved once it was originally in the late 70s early 80s when byron was there right in front of the entrance kind of per parallel to the entrance and then it was moved off to the side off to the side in a gravel area they put some tracks down just so it looked like a train and it was there for until till the 2000 time frame but in the very beginning if someone told you to take your task the 982 They'd be leading you to the front door of the zoo. The park entrance uh, clue, so to speak, right? Outer Belt Drive used to drive. There used to be a driveway went all the way. The street went all the way around the front of the zoo, mm -hmm. connecting the golf course side with the uh, hospital side. That was Outer Belt Drive. And then um, I'm trying to remember when they closed that off and made that uh, just walkways out mm -hmm. there. But I know as late as... It may have been as late as 79 or 80 it was still there because I had to go get a dog out of a car that had been left in a car, and we had to break a window and get it out. I know I've been asked before 
could the cask be buried in one of the lands? Maybe Johnny can talk about what those lands were made of, the ground. <laughs> um, yeah, now you're referring to the, the lands in the, the children's zoo, the Asia, uh, North America, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. Contact areas, I the, think. They, they were, were contact areas. They were compacted heavily. Uh, when the children's zoo was first built, they tried to have grass in there, which is impossible. Over the years, gravel, and we were using a material called red dog, which is uh, ground red granites that was uh, put in there and compacted over and over and over. So uh, there would be no way to dig in there because I've had to try to dig in there before. It's like concrete. I'm assuming that, Wilhouse, you hit all of the areas that were uh, realistic to dig in in the children's zoo in the area where you were finding the image matches. Is there anything that you left untouched? I mean, I've, I've seen the photos. It's, you tore up a lot of land when you went looking. Was there anything left out? And then also, once you talk about that, I, I do have a question again about the trains. But uh, first, did, did you? was there any spot that you didn't hit? There was no dirt area that could be dug in that I didn't either poke or dig in. Now, there were a couple of areas, uh, for instance, over by where the nursery was, there was a real good area where I really liked that was concreted over as a handicap ramp. And I tried to get Byron to tell me whether that was a good area or not because we were actually going to jackhammer that concrete out but i never got a response back from byron and i never got a chance to do that but that was one area that i never did get a chance to dig in because of the service ramp the wheelchair ramp that was concreted over i feel inadequate i really do i dig holes with a shovel you get jackhammers <laughs> backhoes like I just, I can't, I can't. I'm done. I'm done with the puzzle. I'm done. Well, if you find it, you'll have won. Well, we're, we're going to try tonight. Uh, so there is something, though, that when you were talking about the 982 train and you said that it was uh, positioned at the entrance to the park, and then earlier in our conversation, you had mentioned that the mini train was a tired train, a wheeled train. Now, there's train tracks running all over Herman Park. What are those for? If the 982 train didn't roll around and the, the other train, the mini train, was an autonomous train, what are those railroad tracks all over Herman Park for? Herman Park has a railroad, a miniature railroad, with the most beautiful antique, or at least it did at the time, had these incredible antique uh diesel locomotive replicas and uh, they were beautiful uh that ran through the park and then they, we had this tram train that ran through the zoo but you definitely had railroad tracks that looped through herman park uh basically around the most of the perimeter of the park so the herman park railroad that you're speaking of not the tram but the the replica um locomotives that you were speaking of are they uh smaller than are they a small version of what the 982 was that what i'm getting at is one of the clues is uh small of scale and we weren't really able to uh pinpoint what is this the a train is it a bridge is it uh the children's zoo meaning small of scale from the large zoo i'm just wondering if if that herman park railroad may have had something to do with it and was the uh the 982 kind of a large version of what that train was 
The 982 was a full-size steam locomotive. Uh, the, the miniature train in Herman Park was the typical park train that the engineer rode on top of the uh, engine, the locomotive, and then you had the passenger cars behind. It had a horn that you could hear all over the park. It wasn't a whistle. It was a horn, right? The, when I was there, the only one I remember was a, it was a, uh, like a truck horn, a train horn. It was a train horn, but it, it was a two-tone horn that you could hear, you know, sound like a train. The Herman Park Railroad tracks, they do move, or they did move, correct? Uh, they, they haven't been in the same position uh, since the 80s, have they? That railroad was added to a few years back when they expanded the uh, lake and did some other renovations in the park. So it covers a little more territory now. Uh, but it's essentially the same railroad. It's the same railroad with some additions put on. Right. And speaking of additions, the reflection pool was a lot different back in the 80s. That went under there's some changes as well. Do you know when that was improved upon by chance? I, I hate to be hitting you up with the, all these facts and figures, but we very rarely get someone on the show who is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to historical information. I don't think the reflection pool was the, that they did any improvements on that probably until the 90s after, uh, after I'd left the zoo. But it doesn't look anything now like it did then, right? It's much bigger. They moved the, the monument from one end to the other, I understand. You know, I always came in the back entrance of the zoo and never went through the front. So <laughs> I'd have to go back. I'd have, just have to go back and look at pictures of it. I, I do know that the original reflection pool did not have uh, concrete walls. It was just earthen, an earthen lake. There were a number of changes to the main zoo during those years, the uh, gorilla habitat was built in the early 70s, I think 73. The new large cat exhibit came along, wow, I want to think about 1980. I'd have to go back and double check the dates on those, but those were major, major uh, new construction that happened in the main zoo. The the new primate facility was after the Zoological Society took over, or Zoo Inc. Well, so I want to ask you one question. This is something that's come up on the, uh, on the forums and Facebook a lot. I know you believe that the cask is in the children's zoo. Do you hope that it's outside of it? Do you hope someone has a chance? That's an interesting question, and I guess I don't because then it would mean that everything that I believed about it was wrong. So I guess I don't hope it is, but on the other hand, if someone can point to some evidence that says it is, then I'd be first in line to help them find it. I want to thank Will House and our guests, Brian Hill and John Donahue, for joining us on The Secret Podcast. Thank you very much for coming down and telling us what you know and what you can remember about that place. I feel a lot more strongly that uh, Will House was probably in the right spot Thanks, John. Thanks, Wilhouse. And we will see you on the next edition of The Secret Podcast next time. Tune in next time for another edition of Shh, The Secret Podcast with your hosts, J.M. and Bernstein. Available on iTunes. This is the best pizza I've ever had in my entire life.